Hello, and welcome to Mountain Meister. I'm your host, Ben Shank. In today's episode, I speak with pioneering free skier Chris Davenport. Chris was recently inducted into the Colorado Snow Sports Hall of Fame. It was small back then. The industry as a whole had not really come around to the idea that that free skiers really represented the, what the consumer does. Um, it wasn't ski racers, it wasn't mogul skiers, um, but it was free skiers. Chris also talks to us about Mountain Hub. It's an app on your smartphone that uses crowdsourced information to assist you with your outdoors adventures. After that, we introduce a new segment to Mountain Meister. It's called The Company Spotlight. In our company spotlights, we feature short interviews with lesser-known outdoor brands. They tell you about their products and why the company exists, and then we try it for ourselves and tell you what we think. Mountain Meister is supported by Health IQ. Health IQ is an insurance company that helps active and healthy people like yourself get lower rates on their life insurance. Similar to how you save money on car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ helps you save money on your life insurance for living a healthy life. See if you qualify today. Go to healthiq.com slash Meister for a free quote and use that link so they know that I sent you there. Again, that's healthiq.com slash Meister. Okay, now time for my interview with Chris Davenport. We recorded this interview in November of 2017, just getting around to releasing it now. Enjoy. Um, okay, well, let me just give you a quick introduction. Uh, my guest today is Chris Davenport, who at age 46 is one of the most, if not the most, accomplished big mountain skiers today. He figured out a way to make a career out of skiing and has inspired this generation of skiers that you see today. Recently, he was inducted into the Colorado Snow Sports Hall of Fame. Chris Davenport, welcome to Mountain Meister. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be on with you, and I've uh, been wanting to get on Mountain Meister for some time, so psyched to finally make this happen. Oh, yeah. Me too. Um, okay, so it's almost winter. I saw that your Skype status said it's almost winter, getting really fired up. I'm not sure. Was that a recent Skype status that you? Yeah, yeah, that was, and it's uh, it's kind of true. I mean, I, I do ski kind of year-round, um, but this time of year is really special because uh, people are uh, looking at gear and they're getting their ski passes and there's just a lot of awesome energy in the industry as people, um, plan trips and, and, uh, kind of decide what they're going to do for the winter and prognosticate about the snow and the weather and all of that. So I'm excited. I'm anxious and I'm kind of like ready to, to get going and be on the hill every day. Yeah. So, uh, I think that you, do you have a secret project for this coming season? Uh, it's, yeah, I have a project, uh, a new ski mountaineering project. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it secret, although I haven't really shared it, uh, with anybody just because, um, I'm sort of building the plan okay. and, and it's the kind of thing, um, well, first off, it's never been done before, so I don't want the word to get out and then some other intrepid, uh, adventurers mm-hmm. to scoop me on it. So, um, it's something that I'll probably start talking about in the spring. Okay. How many people, I'm curious, have you shared this idea with? Uh, I've shared this idea with, oh gosh, probably three or four. Um, my manager, a couple sponsors, um, and a couple partners. Okay. So yeah, yeah, not too many people, just the inside circle of people that I kind of need to bring on board because doing big 
mountaineering projects, ski projects, film projects. It requires a lot of teamwork. It requires support. And so you have to, you have to have a plan. You know, I, I, you can create a goal or something in your mind that you want to accomplish, but uh, until you have a plan, it's kind of wishful thinking. So there's a lot of, um, thoughtful, um, planning and logistics that goes into being able to pull something off, something big, uh, prior to it actually happening. And, and there could be somebody else out there who has that exact same plan right now. No way, man. No, no, no. only me. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Um, in this day and age, it's like a lot of stuff has been done. And so it, it requires some creative thinking to come up with, um, interesting ski projects that are not only appealing to me personally and, and sort of driven from the heart, but also maybe appealing to the broader, broader, uh, outdoor sports industry or market or consumer or content creators and things like that. So, um, yeah, there's, I, I like to kind of check a number of different boxes when I'm thinking about, um, doing a, a project, you know, it's gotta be, as I said, first and foremost, from the heart, something I'm passionate about, something that really motivates me and I'm excited about and maybe takes me to some new places. Um, it's gotta be a great content creator because we live in the social media era where, um, you know, content is really important and it's fun to create and it's a great way to share, uh, your adventures and, and tell stories. Um, and it, it also has to present a certain challenge and, and perhaps, uh, in doing something that has never been done before. That's, uh, kind of a, a pretty cool tagline for the media or for sponsors and certainly for myself as a personal challenge too. It's so interesting that you said that because I think two days ago, and I used this quote yesterday because, uh, after I read something, I normally find opportunities to bring them up the day after, uh, it's, it was a quote about, uh, authors and how, a hobbyist writes for him or herself and a professional author writes for other people. And that's exactly what you just described there with your skiing. Yeah. 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 I think I'm in the middle there though, you know, because I, I, I like to think that I ski for myself and that I, um, am really just a skier or a ski bum at heart. Like what drives me is to really just be on the mountain every single day. And I take so much pleasure from the, my passion for skiing and, and, uh, and being out there in nature. But at the same time, I'm, I am a professional. I make a living doing what I do. And, and so there, there has to be some balance there as well. But, um, I've never felt like I've sold out my love of the sport, um, to make a living or to satisfy a sponsor obligation. I've always stuck to what matters most to me, uh, which again is just being out in the mountains and, and sharing my experiences with people. So let's go. You said that you grew up in New Hampshire. Uh, you had a, came from a ski racing family, and then, uh, or sorry, you grew up in Mass. Ski racing family skied in New Hampshire. So at what point did you kind of decide that you wanted to ski professionally? Well, I, I guess that sort of fell in my lap. I mean, I, I do remember um, being a young teenager. I think I was 13 years old. And I remember specifically a conversation I had with a friend of mine on the chairlift in New Hampshire one day. We were out skiing and having so much fun. And we were talking to each other about, wouldn't it be cool if we could just ski every day for the rest of our lives? Um, and, and it's funny that that conversation has stuck with me forever. Cause I was that little kid. I, I had that passion for the sport and that's what I wanted to do. Um, I certainly didn't imagine that I could or would do it professionally. Uh, but 
you know, I, I knew that I wanted to maybe try to make a life in skiing, whether it was working at a resort, bumping chairs or flipping burgers or whatever, just so I could get out there. Um, but yeah, somehow through ski racing and then transferring or evolving into big mountain skiing in the early nineties and getting involved in competitions and then starting to win those competitions. Uh, I started getting sponsors calling and, and pretty soon I was able to, to, kind of quit my real job at the ski resort here in Aspen and actually was making good enough living to just focus on being a competitive free skier and, and being in ski movies and uh, working with with brands on product development and stuff and was able to kind of create a, a business around being a professional ski athlete. What was your real job or quote real job in uh, yeah. Aspen? <laughs> I mean, it was a real job. It was I was working uh, for the Aspen skiing company at Snowmax Ski Area. I was uh, working in the race department. So I, I was like the guy setting the NASTAR courses and pace setting and doing race clinics and uh, group events and things. And, um, I loved it. It was great. I was skiing every day. I was working with a great group of people. Uh, when it would snow a lot, we couldn't do ski races. So then we would just go free skiing. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, for a young guy out of college, uh, it was like kind of a dream job. I was getting a free ski pass and a paycheck and I was skiing every day. So that's, um, pretty much where I, where I wanted to be. But, uh, at the same time I was, um, starting to do the, the free skiing contests and thinking about, well, maybe I can make something of this. Uh, and were there other people that were trying to make it at the same time as you? I know you're a trailblazer. Yeah, there was a few, you know, okay. some of my contemporaries were Shane McConkey and Kent Kreitler and Dean Cummings mm -hmm. and Seth Morrison. And, uh, they were also very early in the game. And I would say, you know, in the case of like Shane and, and Kent and Dean had some sponsors before I did. And in fact, it was, uh, in the winter of 94, um, I had known Shane McConkey in high school and, uh, and then we went to college together in Boulder freshman year before he dropped out to just basically keep skiing. But he called me in the, in the winter of 94 and said, Hey, I'm going down to Crested Butte for the U S extreme skiing championships. You should come join me. And I actually didn't even know what that was. Uh, free skiing contests weren't on my radar at the time. And I was like, yeah, Shane's a good friend. He knows what's up. He's been kind of following this stuff already. So I went down and I did my first ever contest, the U.S. Extreme Skiing Championships, and just completely fell in love with the scene, the people, the kind of the culture around it. And since I was a ski racer, I'd been competing my whole life. I was really comfortable in the starting gate. I wasn't nervous and I felt like I had a, a bit of an advantage. And uh, yeah, so after I finished that first contest, I was like, oh man, this is great. I'm going to keep doing these things. And um, I went to South America that summer in Las Lanias, Argentina, and, and um, skied there and met Doug Coombs, who became a real mentor for me. Uh, and then the winter of 95, I committed myself to doing more contests. And uh, yeah, I just kind of started following it really out of passion. I mean, it was just a hobby. I wasn't really thinking it would go anywhere, but uh, pretty soon it did start going places. How, how did you do in that first competition? Yeah, I don't, you know, I, not, I don't really remember what place I got. Um, I think I was like in the twenties, maybe there was probably 80 men. Okay. So I didn't make the finals, but I, I did well enough. Um, the important thing is that I was so stoked on the experience. Um, yeah, I was skiing, I was skiing on my, my, basically my 203 slalom skis. <laughs> I had, I was wearing a sweater. I had no helmet. I mean, it was like pretty rudimentary and, uh, I, I'm pretty sure there was a number of hop turns involved. <laughs>
and just like the way we skied was, was just totally different. And, uh, but it was so fun and everybody was, I don't know, like I said, the culture of, of it all, the people that were there, it was just, uh, I felt like I'd found my tribe. Mm -hmm. And now how many people were failing at, uh, professionally skiing? Well, there, I don't, there really weren't any professional skiers. I mean, aside from maybe the first generation of people like Scott Schmidt and Glenn Flake, um, and, and Doug Coombs who had started a helicopter skiing business in Alaska, you know, those guys had some sponsors and they were making a living. Uh, but the next generation, people my age were really just getting into it. Um, Shane, Kent, Dean, Seth, those guys had some sponsors. They were make starting to, to turn over some dollars and, you know, make, make a living, but it was, it was small back then. The industry, as a whole had not really come around to the idea that that free skiers really represented the, what the consumer does. Mm. Um, it wasn't ski racers, it wasn't mogul skiers, um, but it was free skiers. And it was sort of our generation that convinced big brands that, hey, we're using the same products that you guys sell in the shops and we are great at ski testing and, and, and product development. And so um, yeah, it was in the mid nineties that a number of us began to convince these big companies that we were worth, uh, getting involved with and partnering with uh, from a business standpoint. I mean, yeah, it was an athlete sponsorship, but it was also really a, a two way street where, where we were trying to deliver, um, uh, sales and, and, and build their brands for them. And so uh -huh. you competed for a while, uh, at, at some point though, you changed to more of like a project style. Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I had an awesome uh, competitive career, one that I was really proud of or am really proud of that lasted, uh, I started in 94 and I think the last contest I did was in 07. So 13 or 14 seasons of doing contests and, and filming. And, um, but in, in the summer of 2005, I was, I was thinking about the coming season and, um, just, I don't know, I was kind of, uh, maybe jaded or just over it and wanted to seek out other adventures. At this point I, I was married. I had two kids already and I was just sort of restless and looking for something else in the sport. And as I was having these feelings, um, literally one day out on a mountain bike ride by myself, I got the idea of trying to climb and ski all the 14ers in Colorado, the 14,000 foot peaks. And I got really excited about that idea. And, um, shared it with my wife who in the beginning wasn't super excited about it because it meant a lot more risk and, and perhaps more time out in dangerous situations in Colorado and the mountains. But, uh, you know, ended up sort of convincing people that I, this is what I was going to do. And, and so that winter I, I dove full into the 14ers project and that was really the first, um, I guess you'd call it an athlete project or ski mountaineering project that I did. And it was really, uh, well embraced and, and successful for, for a lot of reasons. And so then that sort of became almost like a template for me to follow in the future, which is coming up with these ideas and, and then, you know, going on to pursue them. And it, you made a film out of this project? I did. Yep. I made a film, uh, documentary film, which was sort of underground for a while because the, um, U.S. Forest Service threatened to throw me in jail if I released huh. it because they said it was illegal to be out filming in the wilderness um, the way – I guess the way we were doing it. So the film huh. was never widely released, although it is it is online um, and I, I never really heard anything about it after that. But I more successfully uh, wrote a book about the project called Ski the 14ers and that book did very, very well. It sold over 10,000 copies and uh, – and, and I think got a lot of people fired up on, on 
the winter aspect of these big mountains because they were popular in the summer and only a very few hardcore ski mountaineers were out there in the winter. I mean, during my project of 54 peaks, which was probably more like 70 or 80 days out there in these peaks, uh, I only saw a handful of other people. Whereas nowadays you go out and you'll, you'll definitely see other skiers on some of the more popular ones. It's, it's become a big thing. You have a knack of predicting, uh, where the future demand in skiing is going to be, right? I mean, you were at freestyle before freestyle was cool. And then you did the backcountry before backcountry was cool. What's next? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's more, I don't know if I have a knack or I'm just good at being in the right place at the right time. Um, but there's something also to be said, uh, having grown up in the industry and it's been just a huge part of my life, or I should say it has been my life. Um, I feel pretty tuned in to what's the trends are and what's happening. So I think I'm, yeah, I've been pretty good at predicting, um, what's next or where things are going. And, uh, uh, but to answer your, your question, like, where do we go from here? Um, we're certainly going to continue to see a lot of growth in, in the backcountry. There's so much information out there now that allows people not only to discover locations, but mainly do it more safely. Um, it's one thing I'm really passionate about from an advocacy standpoint is avalanche education and making sure that people have the proper tools that they need to go out into these oftentimes quite dangerous um, situations and, and do it safely and enjoy the mountains without putting themselves in, in harm's way. Uh, but yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll see continued growth in, in, in backcountry. The products have gotten so good. As I said, there's so much info out there now. Um, and of course, skiing has just gotten more and more expensive when it comes to resorts, resort-based skiing. So I think there's more pressure on people to, to uh, do it more cheaply by just going and skinning in the backcountry. Um, and we're going to see more athletes doing doing big mountaineering projects and stuff. Um, but as we see that, I, I just hope that people understand that, uh, you know, the mountains don't care what app you have on your phone or they don't care what, if you have an airbag or a beacon, it, it's just, it's just dangerous. And so you really got to do your homework, get educated, know what you're doing. Um, all these, all these devices and, and, and things can help make better decisions. But at the end of the day, uh, yeah, the mountains don't care. More of my interview with Chris Davenport coming up soon, including a bit on Mountain Hub, which is an app on your smartphone that uses crowdsourced information to help you make better decisions and have more fun in the mountains this winter. Uh, the more data that we have uh, at our fingertips allows us to make better decisions about where we're going to go or where we're not going to go. Mountain Meister is supported by Health IQ. It's a company that uses data and science to help secure lower life insurance rates for runners, cyclists, and other health-conscious people. Many carriers will end up penalizing people using metrics that might be misleading. For example, an insurer may interpret a low resting heart rate as a bad sign when, for a physically active person, it may be perfectly normal. Health IQ makes sure that you get rewarded, not penalized, for being healthy. To get a free quote, go to healthiq.com slash meister. Again, that's healthiq.com slash meister. Uh, you're also here to promote Mountain Hub. Uh, first off, just explain what Mountain Hub is, and then I have some follow-up questions for you. Yeah, so uh, Mountain Hub is a, a startup. Um, it's an app-based uh, kind of community fueled information platform. Uh, it was founded by a bunch of guys out of MIT in Boston that um, really wanted to create a, a sort of safer outdoor environment by crowdsourcing information so that people had 
more real time, up to date info about what was happening in the backcountry right at their at their fingertips. So uh, an example of that is, you know, say I'm going to go out on a ski tour um, in Aspen. I can go on the app and I can see. Uh, the latest observations that people using the app have have shared. Maybe there's somebody who was out there yesterday and they dug a pit or they um, just skied and, and uh, made some observations about the snow quality on certain aspects and things like that. Uh, the more data that we have uh, at our fingertips allows us to make better decisions about where we're going to go or where we're not going to go. And so, um, yeah, the app is growing, uh, continuing to grow quickly. Um, the software platform is really intuitive. It's, it's social. Um, and it's really just about bringing the outdoor community together. And I should also say, I mean, it's not just for skiing. I, I use it for mountain biking, for trail conditions, uh, running, um, anything that you might be doing out in the mountains, the more, the more info you have, the, the better we're off we're all going to be. Now you described there digging the pit, which only a certain number of people know how to do, uh, what is what is better for somebody to report on their pit and have the potential to make mistakes in their report or for them to not report it at all? Yeah, that's a really good question because uh, certainly if I was to uh, click on somebody's report and that person is someone I don't know, they're not vetted, they're, uh, then I would – there'd be a certain amount of, of – um, information that might be left open to interpretation. So what we've done is created a, a professional uh, user group. Uh, and to be in that professional user group, you have to be a, a snow industry professional. So you might be an avalanche forecaster, you might be a mountain guide or a pro skier, somebody who's got a, a higher level of experience and education. And so you can see those, those professional users on their profile. So when I see a report, uh, I can click on it and I know exactly whether or not that person is a, a professional user or a recreational user. And that can help uh, determine you know, how much, I guess, maybe credence you're going to put into that report. So if I see, you know, a local mountain guide who was out there and he shared some pit data, well, that generally speaking is going to be uh, pretty reliable uh, stuff. It's like and, the yeah. blue check mark on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. You're verified yes. to some degree. Right. Uh -huh. um, and with that said, you, you don't you take any of this as 100 um, percent. You know, this guy says that the pit's good. So that means the entire uh, slope or the whole region is good. Right. It still leaves a lot up to individual interpretation. Um, so, yeah, oh, my dog freaking out because he loves snow pits, too. <laughs> Let him out. What kind of dog do you have? I have a pug dog. A pug? <laughs> A pug. Really? Pug. Yeah. And, you know, we live out sort of just out in the countryside outside of Aspen. And um, we got a lot of road bikers that go by. And so he loves barking at the road bikers. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, you know, Mountain Hub is like the, it's the first app of its kind that's bringing the community together to crowdsource all this information so that we can all have more data at our fingertips to make better decisions and just be safer out there. Um, traditionally, at least when I was growing up, you know, you would pick up the phone and you'd call the avalanche forecast. That might be the only bit of data that you could get unless you talked to some friends who had been out there. But back then there really wasn't that many people out there. It was a pretty small community. Well, now we've got kind of a global community. So no matter where I go in the world, I, I could see somebody on Mountain Hub posting information that's going to help me be a, a safer backcountry user. And so there's this data for good initiative, uh, which basically aligns 
Mountain Hub's data with organizations that uh, can use it to their benefit. Um, and I'm just looking at the website now. Uh, the Outdoor Alliance is using it to see how people are accessing public lands and to use that in protecting public lands. Um, we have some uh, NASA citizen science for the actual snow observation and then uh, behavior, which uh, is probably what interests me most from Montana State University. Um, and I'm guessing they're pairing up uh, the snow conditions with how people behave as groups. Is that what they're doing there? Yeah, exactly. It's 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 really um, interesting to see. Once we realized that we had all of this data, it's like, well, how, how are we going to use this beyond just the consumer? Um, we had a lot of conversations about, is this data proprietary or is it out there um, you know, for the common good? And we all realized that this is basically um, information that can help anyone and everyone who's interested in, in uh, being safer in the backcountry or in the case of uh, NASA scientists understanding uh, water content and, and, and how that affects runoff in the spring and summer. Um, and then, you know, public lands conservation, how, yeah, how are people using our public lands and, and in, in what ways does that help them, um, planning for, for the future of, of conservation? Um, certainly climate change research has become an important one. I mean, again, the more people you have out there gathering data, the, the more you, the bigger data set you have and the more powerful a tool that is. So, um, and then of course for avalanche forecasters, it's the same. If you only have, you know, one forecaster in a, in a mountain range, it's really difficult for him to gather enough, uh, data because there's so much spatial variability. You know, what he, what he sees in one pit on one slope might be completely different than what's happening a mile or a half mile or even a hundred yards away. So, uh, we're trying to just, yeah, use this data to give people more, more info and it can enhance so many different, uh, um, aspects of the scientific community, the outdoor community, um, and, 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 and the public domain really. Search Mountain Hub on your app store or go to mountainhub.com for more information. Uh, Chris, I was wondering if you could provide us with a gear recommendation. We ask this of all of our guests, but since you have so many sponsors, I thought it would be unique if you could uh, give us a recommendation from a company that doesn't pay you. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really uh, interesting um, question. I've been, I've been very fortunate that I've had so many uh, great and long-term relationships with with brands in the outdoor industry, um, and so it, it's kind of a challenging one because a lot of the products that I use are are uh, ones that I have. <laughs> I have, and, and then you also probably have to worry about not recommending a company that conflicts with those uh, that pay you. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, that's true as well. Um, so if you can't, if it's too difficult, if you can't think of it, that's okay. I, but I, yeah, well, here's, I, I here's one and, and it's not really a, 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 um, a hardware product, but, uh, I, I think as a, as a skier, as an outdoor enthusiast, as a backcountry user, whatever, we're, we're all about healthy living. You know, we love being fit and being athletes and, and taking care of our bodies. And so, um, for the last year I've been using, um, these products from this company called Hana one and they basically make like food supplements. So Vetcher ghee and, uh, Ayurvedic, um, uh, supplements that, you know, I, I put in my coffee in the morning and, um, they have this really cool ashwagandha superfood 
that uh, I, I put in my smoothies um, and I put the vetcher ghee in my coffee, which is almost like a clarified butter, but it's like some super healthy fats. And uh, yeah, I just kind of came across this brand and I buy it and it's awesome. And uh, I don't know, in the morning I get kind of fired up to eat healthy and then, you know, get out in the mountains. Good answer. Now, okay, go ahead. You can uh, give us something that you're excited about from a company that does pay you. Oh gosh. Well, you know, all of the stuff that I use is, is pretty much the best in the entire industry. <laughs> no, I mean, there's, you know what, there's, we, we are really fortunate as, uh, outdoor adventurers, athletes, um, enthusiasts, what have you, that there's so much good product out there right now as skiers. There's so many great ski manufacturers. There's so many great clothing manufacturers, backcountry tools. Um, there's just a lot of good product. Um, but I've been very closely involved in the development, uh, specifically of th with three brands, which is spider clothing, um, developing my own technical clothing line. It's called the white spider collection mm -hmm. and it's, uh, just super technical, but really, and really functional, you know, three layer shells and pants and, and, uh, layering pieces and insulators that, um, are basically built for mountaineering, but can be used on the ski resort and, so the white spider collection is in its uh, seventh year, I think, and it continues to grow. That's been a, a really cool um, project and challenge. And then, of course, I'm one of the owners of Kessley Skis, which is an Austrian uh, ski manufacturer. And we're doing really high performance uh, ski products, both for, uh, you know, resort skiers as well as big mountain and backcountry. Our, our new TX collection of backcountry skis is a uh, carbon fiber uh, wrapped uh, wood core with really lightweight, um, uh, lightweights, but also very, very high performance. I think those are uh, among the best performing skis in that category. Um, and I like to say that people just need to get on them once, like literally one run, you'll go, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. Uh, and then, um, with Scarpa ski boots, which is an Italian ski boot manufacturer, I was very closely involved in the development of their first four buckle, um, AT free ride boot, uh, which is called the freedom. And that boot has been super successful and continues to be a market leader. And, and it's one that, man, if that boot fits your foot, there's nothing better out there. So the, all those three relationships have been really exciting for me. I've learned a ton. I continue to learn a ton about the the product development cycle and, and new materials and trends and stuff. And, um, that setup, if you, uh, if you can get on it is, is pretty much hard to beat. We'll have all of those posted to your webpage on our website, mtnmeister.com. Okay. A few, uh, fun questions for you before, uh, we end the interview. I want to know, uh, what is your favorite ski run? What is my favorite ski run, man? I, it's another hard one. I've, I've been really fortunate to kind of ski all over the world. It's got to be something right here in my backyard. Um, so I'm going to have to say Highlands Bowl oh, at Aspen Highlands. Yeah, yeah. Right here, we've got four ski resorts. Uh, I, I tend to ski all of them, maybe buttermilk a little bit less. But, uh, you know, Highlands Bowl is, is unique. It's kind of a freak of nature. It, it sort of uh, wraps around from east facing to or actually even south facing to east to north so depending on snow conditions and weather you can pick and choose your aspect um it takes about it's about an 800 foot hike to the summit takes anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes depending on on who you are and what the boot pack is like but it's a really fun hike on a ridge that sort of drops away on both sides with amazing vistas so the hike is a huge part of it you get a great workout a lot of locals 
will will go hike it during their lunch break or they'll go you know do two or three or six or seven laps which is a huge day um and it's you can get really really fit skiing highlands bowl and uh the north facing trees of the g zones it's called uh hold really cold dry snow weeks after a storm uh it the pitch is up to 48 degrees it's long it's a leg burner um and if I had to ski one run for the rest of my life, I'd say it's probably Highlands Bowl. Do you have what's your number for the most laps you've done in one day? Oh, I've done I've done six. Six, okay. Uh, yeah, and I think the record is nine. Oh, okay. Might even be ten. It was our local ski uh, mountaineer pro John Gaston, who's oh, like yeah. one best skimo racers in the world. He's on the U.S. ski mountaineering team, and uh, just a you know he's a just a, basically a along with legs. <laughs> He's awesome. Um, okay. On Aspen mountain, if you're 85, 90 years old, the last run of your life. Oh my God. Well, the, the cool thing about Aspen mountain is, I mean, the whole mountain is generally an expert mountain. I mean, there's some groomers, but, uh, my favorite thing to do. And, and even if I'm 90 years old, like our, uh, our local friend here, Klaus Obermeyer, who's 95 years old, he'll take the gondola up and just go top to bottom, right down Spar Gulch, 3,000 vertical feet of high-speed carving. Uh, it doesn't get much better than that. And, and you know, some days I'll go up in the first run or two in the morning, I'll just do these two super high-speed groomers. And, you know, you can bang out huge amounts of vertical on Aspen Mountain with the gondola and um, – that's probably what I'll be doing at that age. And my next question was, what was, or what's the most vertical you've skied in one day? Do you know? Uh, yeah, I do know. Um, it's a lot. And uh, <laughs> can you guess? You're not even going to be close, but try um, to guess. Well, I'm trying to think. You've probably at one point in your life done a 24-hour ski day. There you go. Um, yeah. And so I'm going to say uh, 200,000 vertical. Yeah, that's pretty good. I did... Uh, 80 laps on Aspen mountain. And so 240 wow. <laughs> plus thousand vert in the 24 hour period. And, uh, that is the most fatigued I think I've ever been <laughs> it took me a couple weeks to really recover from that one. Uh, favorite apres ski food and drink. Um, Oh man, it's, you know, gosh, pretty simple, you know, a nice, probably a nice plate of nachos and a cold beer is, is, I don't know if it gets much better than that. Any particular spots at Aspen? Um, gosh, you know, I, I like going to the Highlands Ale House right at the base of Aspen Highlands at the end of the day because it's very social and you always run into friends there. And um, usually I'll just get, you know, a beer or a slice of pizza or something there. Uh, I'm not a huge opera skier, to be honest. Uh, oftentimes I'll do that if I'm traveling somewhere or I'm with some clients or with a group or something. But when I'm home, if, you know, once my ski day is over, I'm usually hustling to get to the next thing. And, uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm not a professional operator like some. Oh, I, you know, I hate to bring this question up at the end of the interview when we're having such a light conversation, but I did mean to ask you this question. Don't you ever feel guilty that you are like living as a career, what most people do for vacation? Uh, yeah, I do, uh, feel, well, I do feel like I'm living other people's vacations. And I think a lot of people that live in mountain towns, uh, perhaps get, get that feeling, but, uh, that has 
come from a lot of hard work and a lot of planning that I get to do what I do. And it's something I don't take for granted. I feel very fortunate to do it. And, uh, I, I continue to have to work hard to, you know, make a great living and support my family and my three boys that are all ski racing and stuff. And, uh, so yeah, I feel super fortunate. Um, guilty, eh, not so much. You know what? Um, people in, all need to figure out what they love in their lives and make it happen. Life's short, go after it. My last question for you and for all of our guests, who would you like to hear next on this show? Who's the next mountain meister? Uh, there are so many people that have great stories to tell. Um, somebody that I really look up to and, and have had the great pleasure of working very closely with it, protect our winners over the years is Jeremy Jones. So, uh, I think you should get a snowboarder on the show. Jeremy's, uh, the best big mountain snowboarder in the world. He's a visionary, super hardworking. And I think he would be a fantastic interview. We actually had Jeremy Jones on. So I'm going to have to force you no. to pick somebody else. Okay. This question's getting harder and harder as we have more guests. Well, here's another contemporary, and I hope I, ha I hope you haven't had him on yet, but uh, the godfather of the new school, Mike Douglas. Go Mike ahead. Douglas, out of out of Whistler, BC, was a, the the founder of the new Canadian Air Force and built the Solomon 1080 ski, and uh, he and I designed the Solomon Pocket Rocket, and um, he uh, continues at his advanced age to be uh, just one of the great free skiers and, and also voices for skiing with his um, Solomon Free Ski TV uh, media um, uh, property that he, that he runs and Switchback Entertainment. The films that he produces are incredible. He's a great storyteller, uh, and he's one of those guys that's done it all, and, and we get to spend a lot of time together and skiing in Chile every year uh, at my ski camp and uh, somebody that really he inspires me and I think he'd be also a great interview very good keep an ear out for Mike Douglas on a future episode of Mountain Meister you can find out more chrisdavenport.com follow him on Facebook Instagram thanks so much for joining today Chris yeah Ben this has been a lot of fun I, I can talk about skiing all day and uh, I appreciate the great questions and uh, yeah get on Mountain Meister it's fun that was pioneering free skier Chris Davenport. All of the links to what we talked about on today's episode will be on our website, mtnmeister.com, as well as the show notes of this episode. Up next is a segment that we're adding to every Mountain Meister episode from here on out. It's called The Company Spotlight. On this part of the show, we'll feature an interview with a lesser-known outdoor company. It gives them an opportunity to explain their brand and their line of products. After that, we'll review the product. In this episode, it will be myself and Hannah Van Wetter. You'll hear from her in a bit. Each part, the spotlight and the review, will run about five to 10 minutes long. Now, before we acquaint you with the company, there are a few things that I want you to know about what I think makes this special. First of all, companies are not allowed to pay to be featured. We get absolutely no money from doing this, no flat rate payment, no commission for the percent of sales on a promo code, anything like that. The only requirement is that the company provides us with some gear samples because we have to try the product. This leads me to my next point. We only feature companies whose products we have tried. And finally, we are not going to be afraid to say anything negative about these products so long as the comments are constructive. Again, we have no financial interest in what we say about them. So anything good or bad, we are only interested in making this entertaining and useful for you. With all of that said, this is still an experiment. If you like it or you hate it, or you think that there are some ways that maybe we can make it better, 
please email me, ben at mtnmeister.com. Our first company spotlight is with Oros Apparel. That's O-R-O-S Apparel. This is my chat with one of their co-founders, Michael Marksberry. Oros, in essence, took this NASA spacesuit insulation, so the stuff NASA used to insulate their spacesuits, space shuttles, and the Mars rovers, and put it into outerwear so you can wear really thin gear and be incredibly warm. Uh, but Oros, the name came from, um, so there's two co-founders of Oros. There's Rithik Vena and myself. Uh, and we both believe that whenever you engage in a task, you have to sacrifice for that task. So blood, sweat, tears, time, money. Um, and Oros is ancient Greek for mountain. So it's a, a representation of the challenge of the sacrifice that comes along with a task. Uh, so hence Oros. So uh, you talked, you mentioned about the uh, the insulation, NASA inspired. So it's used on the Mars rover. Yep, it's used Mars rovers. It's been used to keep fuel at cryogenic levels in space. Uh, used on space shuttles. Uh, NASA's used it for a series of different types of insulation. I, and I don't know how much you know about space, but space is really, really cold, right? It's two degrees above absolute zero. Uh, uh, so it's been used as some of the best torture tests in the universe. So why is this good for insulating a human though? I mean, if it, it's good for space, but why put it on a body? Yeah, great question. Uh, so, uh, aerogel can be made incredibly breathable, uh, and incredibly hydrophobic. So initially, you know, aerogels weren't that great, uh, uh, for apparel. So if you type aerogel into Google and you press images, you're going to see this light blue looking aerogel. And that's the aerogel that that's infamous for being used by NASA. Uh, well, it had one big problem. Uh, if you would poke it, it would shatter into a thousand little pieces. Uh, bad news bears for apparel, right? We need that flexibility. Uh, uh, so when we when we discovered uh, aerogel or discovered that this was something being used by NASA, our question was, okay, uh, so if this is this amazing insulation being used in the best torture test in the universe space, how do we bring it down to apparel where it's still flexible and durable enough to, to uh, suffice in the outdoor market? Uh, and so we, we worked to find a way to take small particles of aerogel and embed it into a composite. So it's, it's, it's part closed cell foam, part aerogel. Uh, and so you get the flexibility and the durability of the foam, but you get the insulation performance of the aerogel. And that's a proprietary product called SolarCore, uh, which is in all of our gear. So this uh, is your, your product, SolarCore? Yes, correct. Okay. Uh, and it has two big benefits over every other type of insulation on the market today. Uh, one is per unit thickness. It has amazing thermal performance. It will hold up to the best of them. It'll hold up to synthetics, to other foams, to goose down. Uh, and that's the easy one to understand. But the higher value proposition and the one that's a little harder to understand goes back to this idea around loft. Uh, so I'm sure you know what loft is, mm -hmm. uh, but but almost every insulation used in apparel today, whether synthetic or natural like Goose Down, relies on loft for thermal performance. Take like Goose Down. 
So goose down traps air, and the more air it traps per given space, the better of an insulation it provides. Uh, the problem is when you compress goose down, it loses a majority of its thermal performance. That's why if you've ever been in a sleeping bag on a cold day and you lay down on the ground, you get faster from the ground first than you do the air. Solar core and aerogels are totally different. Uh, under compression at 15 PSI, tons and tons of pressure, uh, solar core maintains 95% of its thermal performance. And so what that means is, in addition to uh, uh, holding up its own against these other insulations, for the first time ever, you can actually have a thin amount of insulation that you put into a product like the quarter zip you're wearing today and actually provide significant thermal value. Where before, to get thermal value, you needed tons of airspace leading to the Michelin effect. So I have to be honest, I'm not used to this insulator, right? Like a, if I put on a product that has down in it, I'm used to that product, the fluffiness or whatever. This I have to describe as almost like if if, if you shaved like an eighth of an inch or a sixteenth of an inch off of like a mattress topper, like a foam mattress topper, that's what's inside of this garment. So I'm not used to it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, it, uh, it's, 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 it's definitely different than Goose Down. Uh, it's definitely different than synthetics, uh, uh, which has that, uh, that lofty feel this, uh, it's still squishy and compressible. Uh, but to your point, it definitely is a different feel than, uh, 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 a typical needled or high loft insulation. So you're speaking to a bunch of outdoors enthusiasts right now, who particularly among those outdoors enthusiasts are you targeting with this kind of product? Definitely. Uh, so if you uh, hate wearing a bunch of layers to stay warm, if you if you don't like all of the bulk uh, uh, or if you conditionally or are, are, are consistently cold, uh, uh, Oros is a product for you. Uh, and the beauty uh, uh, of solar core and Oros is uh, especially that you can do your activity uh, with this on, unlike uh, uh, a lot of goose downs uh, where you'll just sweat your butt off. Mm -hmm. Solar core has uh, a high CFM or a high breathability, uh, which is incredible for a lot of cold outdoor activities. Two final questions. First, tell us about the line of products that you have, and then uh, maybe just attach a retail price to each of them. Absolutely. Uh, so our most extreme and iconic product is the Orion Parka. Uh, this is our heaviest duty, warmest jacket that we offer. Uh, this is what you want to wear if you are going on those expeditions. Uh, it's been to never before summited mountains in Nepal. Uh, it's an amazing product. I wear one myself. Uh, MSRP today, I believe, is $299. Uh, uh, then we have our typical commuter jacket, the Discovery jacket, a little bit less insulation, uh, a little bit less solar core than the, than the Orion, uh, but a great everyday jacket. Um, and then we have all of our sportswear. As you're wearing the quarter zip, uh, we have a great mid-layer fleece. Uh, and then our bestseller by units, uh, believe it or not, is the beanie. Uh, the beanie has, if you haven't checked it out yet, has solar core placed just around the ears. Uh, one of your first places to get cold, right? It's always the hands, feet, nose, and ears. 
but we didn't cover the entire beanie and solar core because your head uh, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> releases, fire. absolutely releases tons of heat. Uh, so you don't want your whole head co- covered. You just want the most important areas, your ears. Uh, so and the beanie is one of my favorite products as well. And it's a great first product to buy if you want to try out Oros, right? It's the cheapest, uh, the least expensive of all the products at uh, $30. That's Oros Apparel co-founder Michael Marksberry. Oros is offering you a 10% discount on their website with the code MEISTER at checkout. But before you use that, listen to what Hannah Van Wetter and I thought of the products that we tried. My name's Hannah. I uh, am a former Boston friend and semi-roommate of Ben's. I am living in Colorado. Um, I like skiing and biking and being outdoors. Your roommate Max's girlfriend. I am roommate Max's girlfriend, the uh, the more famous of the two of us. You've uh, been mentioned on the show a couple of times. And what did you do this summer? This summer, um, roommate Max and I drove in a van and we toured around the country and uh, lived out of our self-converted camper van for six months. And uh, we just moved to Colorado. So we just sold the van and put ourselves in a stationary home. Hannah and I know each other through roommate Max, who was my roommate in Boston. Now I live in Pittsburgh, and they live in Denver. We really miss each other. Both of them spend a ton of time outside skiing, riding bikes, hiking, and they'll be helping me with the gear reviews. For this review, Hannah and I tried out the female and male versions of the quarter zip from Oros. Here's Hannah. Looks seemingly normal as a, as a layer um, similar to a Nike dry fit or, or something, um, color gray, very nice and neutral. But then when you take it out of the packaging, it's this sort of dense, um, almost memory foam material on the back and chest regions, sort of like a vest, uh, built into this dry fit esque layer. Um, at first I thought it was really, really weird. It was kind of stiff when I pulled it out of the bag, wasn't sure, um, what it would be like to wear, if it would be form fitting, if it would be, you know, comfortable. Um, and I actually used it the next, the day after I got it, um, we were in Moab finishing up our, our trip and we went for a 35 mile bike ride. It was a shuttle. So we were driven up to the top of the LaSalle mountains, which was at about 11,000 feet. And it was cold. We started at like nine 30 in the morning, um, beginning of November and I put on that Oros layer because I wasn't quite sure what to wear. And I put it on in the car before we got to the top. And by the time I got to the top, I was physically sweating. It was like the layer was producing its own heat while we were sitting in the car without any sitting in the car, not, not riding your bike up the mountain, not riding my bike. Yeah, this was, and we didn't even have heat blasting or anything, but you know, we were all kind of layered up. Um, cause it was, you know, November in the desert Mm-hmm. And it's quite cold in the morning. And so I, I uh, got to the top and got out of the car and didn't even feel the chill of the morning because this layer was working so well. What um, happened later in the bike ride? So I wore it um, and and the ride starts with a 600 foot really intense climb over the first mile. Um, so we all started out pretty layered up. And then within the first mile and a half, we were all sweating and took off all of our clothes. So I, I put that layer in my backpack, and then once we got to the top, we were now at about 12,500 feet. Um, it was about 10, 15 in the morning, so the sun was coming up, but still a chilly temperature. Uh, and I put the Oros layer back on, and it was a perfect layer to descend in. It was actually far more form-fitting and comfortable than I had anticipated. And I wore it until probably about 1 o'clock that day when the sun was really up and we were um, 
kind of move and didn't need that layer anymore. But I was pleasantly surprised not only by the heat it gave off, um, but also by the way that it was pretty packable um, and comfortable. I think that this is a good downhill skiing top. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's gonna, yeah, it keeps you warm. It, it keeps you really warm. You're not really generating that much heat when you're downhill skiing. Yeah, I think when I, uh, and I, the other Oros piece I got were the insulated leggings, which I oh, um, nice. have worn. They're not quite as attractive, I don't think. They have sort of um, the, the same insulating material sort of stitched into the sides. It almost looks like padding. Yeah. Um, and I was a soccer goalkeeper, so it's almost like they could be like goalie pants. Yeah. I, um, when I first put on this pullover, my roommate said that I looked a little bit chunkier. Um, mm-hmm. needless to say, these aren't as good of roommates as you guys. <laughs> They're just honest. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it does have a little bit of a, uh, a padded, um, a padded look The the arms are nice and fitted, but yeah, yeah. um, yeah, there's a bit of, you know, you feel like you're wearing hockey pads or a rugby shirt or something. Right. Right. And you put um, that top on. It feels like a piece that you can wear with jeans. Um, but then you can mm-hmm. also wear, uh, like with long underwear and then some ski pants. So I think that's where this outfit or this piece shines. Um, it also, what I liked is that it seems like it fits very true to size and it, the cut itself is fashionable. The arms aren't too, too long. Uh, the body isn't hanging too low on my, uh, like over my butt or anything. I don't know about how it is for you. Yeah, I agree. I think the other, uh, the other aspect of it that I really like, so my, my mother is a lot of, um, she runs cold, um, and has a hard time maintaining her body temperature. And, um, so I've, I've thought about having her wear it, um, skiing or going for hikes or anything. I actually gave it to my grandmother when she was in Colorado to wear, um, on a hike and she was way too warm, which is a good thing. So it would be a good, a good layer for those people in your life that are, are constantly running cold. Yeah. Yeah. And on the padded look when you wear this, I mean, if you think about, a different kind of insulation if we weren't used to it. If somebody, if you saw somebody wearing down for the first time, you would say you look like the Michelin man. Uh, so this is just a piece I think, or insulation that we're not used to, not necessarily like if, if people can get used to this kind of insulation, I don't think it would look as weird, obviously. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the idea of wearing a basically a giant fluffy marshmallow is just acceptable because everybody does it. Okay, this is something that I hope to do with each of these segments. Uh, would you buy this with your own money, Hannah? Yes or no? I think yes, especially as a gift. Um, I think if I, knowing what I know now, I think I would definitely buy it for my mother or grandmother or you know my cousin who's always complaining about being cold. Um, kind of those people that you know need that little bit of extra layer as you do those outdoor things. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't buy it for myself necessarily. I can't picture myself going for a run in it or going cross country skiing or skinning or anything that, you know, you, you rapidly, you know, climbing uphill on a bike, anything that you're generating a lot of heat. It's not the most comfortable to wear, but I think it would be make a good gift. Great. What about you, Ben? Would you buy it for yourself? No. Uh, my answer is no. Who would I have to be to buy this with my own money? I think is the better question. Uh, I'd have to be a person who is interested in trying out new technologies, kind of that first mover. Um, I would have to not so much care about a classic or a recognizable brand name because obviously this isn't that established of a brand yet. Um, And I'd have to be a person who often runs cold 
as you said. Yeah, I think all, you hit it right on the head. All those things would be, um, especially the new technology. They Oro says that they're 275% warmer than the average down insulation, which I believe once I, you know, watched that thing heat up. Check out the whole line at orosapparel.com. That's O-R-O-S apparel.com. If you want to make a purchase, use the code MEISTER at checkout for 10% off. I just spoke with Hannah last night. It's been a couple of months since we recorded that segment. She said she was thinking of letting her mom try out the piece, which she eventually did in this ski vacation they went on in British Columbia. They had a frigid day, like in the negative degrees Fahrenheit. Hannah says that this base layer is now her mom's favorite article of ski clothing. She's not giving it up. And they're thinking of buying Max's dad one too because he runs perpetually cold. Maybe it's not for Hannah or me, but it could be for you. 10% off with Meister at checkout. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. Again, would love to hear what you think about that new segment. If you have any ideas, feel free to share them with me. Ben at mtnmeister.com. Also, I should apologize about the hiatus from releasing new episodes. Going forward, new Mountain Meister episodes will be released once a month at the beginning of the month. I now have a full-time job at a behavioral science lab at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh and just don't have enough time to do the once-a-week format like before. Enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank, and thanks for listening to Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister.